0: Ready to begin? I have uh, read a, an earlier version of this lecture. It's You're in for a treat. All right, this is our seventh annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. Uh, we have uh, with us the gentleman who gave the inaugural B. Kenneth Simon Lecture, Judge, then Chief Judge uh, Doug Ginsburg. Welcome, Judge Ginsburg. And um, this is a series that is named after B. Kenneth Simon, uh, a Pittsburgh industrialist who um, was a, a great student of and um, fan of the founding period. Uh, he was also a generous benefactor of the Cato Institute. He endowed the chair that I hold. He endowed a center over at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, He was um, a very um, um, colorful man who died just a few years ago, but uh, in the last years of his life, he did a a tremendous amount for furthering the ideas of the founding. And so uh, we're very pleased this year to be uh, joined by uh, Professor Randy Barnett to be giving this lecture. Um, Randy is an old friend of the Cato Institute, uh, as many of you know. Um, he is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. Uh, he's also taught a wide range of subjects torts, criminal law, evidence, agency and partnership, and jurisprudence, of course. Uh, After graduating from Northwestern University and the Harvard Law School, he tried felony cases uh, as a prosecutor in Crook County uh, in the city of Chicago. Um, He's been a visiting professor at Northwestern and at Harvard Law School. Uh, In 2008, he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Constitutional Studies. Um, In 2004, he um, appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to argue the medical cannabis case uh, that he had previously uh, won in the Ninth Circuit, um, G- uh, Gonzales v. Reich, Unfortunately, it was not so, quite so successful in the Supreme Court, so much the worse for the court. Uh, he lectures um, internationally and appears frequently on uh, radio and television programs. Um, he has um, eight books under his name, uh, including The Structure of Liberty, uh, Justice and the Rule of Law, and The Presumption of Liberty, And he has just uh, completed, and um, it's now in uh, use in a number of law schools, a, a constitutional casebook that is unique insofar as it treats the subject not topically, but rather chronologically. And so you see how we have moved from the Constitution to modern constitutional law. And, of course, the gap between the two is fairly yawning. And that will be one of the things that... Randy will be addressing today, so would you please join me in welcoming Randy Barnett. Sure.
1: Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I am honored to be delivering the 7th annual B Kenneth Simon lecture. I've been very I've been philosophically close to the Cato Institute since its founding. And one of the fringe benefits of having moved to uh, Georgetown is that I'm now physically close to the Cato Institute as well. Uh, as a public policy shop, the work of Cato touched only tangentially on my own scholarship. Uh, but ever since the establishment of its Center for Constitutional Studies under the extraordinary leadership of my old friend Roger Pollan, together with the expansion of uh, my scholarly interests into the field of constitutional law, I've enjoyed a much closer relationship to Cato than ever before. That I might be invited to deliver the prestigious Simon Lecture is, for me, a wonderful validation of a beautiful friendship. Today, I want to address a topic that goes to the heart of the mission of the Cato Institute and its Center for Constitutional Studies, and that is the question, is the Constitution libertarian? Now, truth be told, libertarians have a love-hate relationship with the Constitution, On the one hand, libertarians, like most Americans, revere the Constitution. Libertarians particularly appreciate its express guarantees of individual liberty and its mechanisms to preserve limited government. If being an American is to subscribe to a creed, then the Constitution, along with the Declaration of Independence, are the foundational statements of this creed. It's no coincidence, then, that the Cato Institute is famous for distributing thousands of copies of its little red books containing the Declaration and Constitution so that the public, both here and abroad, might read and appreciate the actual words of these singular texts. But some libertarians have issues with the Constitution as well. And here I speak for myself as well as others. There was a reason that I eschewed writing about and teaching constitutional law when I became a law professor in favor of teaching contracts in that list of other subjects that Roger rattled off. For after taking constitutional law in law school, I considered the Constitution an experiment in limiting the powers of government that, however noble, had largely failed. Every time we got to one of the good parts of the text, we then read a Supreme Court opinion that explained why it didn't really mean what it appeared to mean. Nor was only one branch of the government to blame for this. The judicial passivism of the Supreme Court has combined with activism by both Congress and presidents to produce the behemoth federal and state governments that seem to render the actual Constitution a mere relic, rather than the governing document it purports to be. This fundamental failure of the Constitution to limit the size and scope of government has even led some libertarians to contend Um, that the enactment of the Constitution represented something like a coup d'etat by big government federalists against the more preferable regime defined by the Articles of Confederation and favored by the anti-federalists. You in the room know who you are. (laughs) Yet libertarians are generally torn, one might go so far as to say schizophrenic, about how the Constitution has actually worked out. Big and as intrusive as government is today, it could be a whole lot worse. Few can point to other countries where individuals are freer in practice than in the United States. Many libertarians might be willing to move there if such a place existed, yet no such exodus has taken place. In important respects, life as an American feels freer than it once did. We seem to have more choices than ever before and are freer to live the sorts of lives we wish. Libertarians still refer to the United States as a free country. Maybe still the freest on Earth, even as the Cato Institute documents the many ways in which our freedoms are unnecessarily restricted. That the Constitution deserves at least some of the credit for this freedom seems likely. So the, que- so the question is, is the Constitution libertarian or not? And it turns out this is not a, an entirely easy question to answer. For one thing, we need to settle on what is meant by libertarian. The most obvious meaning of libertarian is a commitment to individual liberty. In my experience, the world is divided between Lockeans and Hobbesians, between those for whom individual liberty is their first principle of social ordering and those who give priority to the need for government, power, to provide social order and to pursue social ends. However, the general sympathy, a general sympathy for individual liberty shared by most, most Americans should be distinguished from the modern political philosophy known as libertarianism. A libertarian in this sense, in this more specialized sense, favors the rigorous protection of certain individual rights that define the space within which people are free to choose how to act. These fundamental rights consist of, first, the right of private property, which includes the property one has in one's own person. Second, the right of freedom of contract, by which rights are transferred from one person to another. Third, the right of first possession by which property comes to be owned from an unowned state. Fourth, the right to defend oneself and others when fundamental rights are being threatened. And fifth, the right to restitution or compensation from those who violate another's fundamental rights. In my talk, what I plan to do is consider the degree to which the Constitution is libertarian insofar as it respects and protects the fundamental rights to which modern libertarians adhere. Now, for some, asking whether the Constitution is libertarian may seem completely inappropriate. In one of the most famous lines in any Supreme Court opinion, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., in his dissenting opinion in the 1905 case of Lochner v. New York, proclaimed that, quote, the Constitution does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. Holmes was referring to Spencer's Law of Equal Freedom, the principle made so famous by Spencer that Holmes could be confident that his readers would not miss his reference. That this was Holmes's target was made clear just before his reference to Spencer when he referred to, quote, the liberty of the citizen to do as he likes so long as he does not interfere with the liberty of others to do the same, which he then, Holmes then dismissed as, quote, a shibboleth for some well-known writers. Holmes took on Spencer in this way because the majority opinion in Lochner came as close as the Supreme Court ever has to protecting a general right to liberty under the 14th Amendment. In his opinion for the court, Justice Peckham affirmed that the Constitution protected, quote, the right of the individual to his personal liberty or to enter into those contracts in relation to labor which may seem to him appropriate or necessary for the support of himself and his family, unquote. For this reason, that is Peckham's affirmation of liberty, ever since law school, Peckham's opinion in Lochner has been my favorite majority opinion in any Supreme Court case. Justice Scalia's opinion in Heller has now become number two. <laughs> Quite an accomplishment. There's only two I like, so that's... Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, Holmes's pithy dissent Offered two influential arguments against recognizing a general constitutional right to liberty, and these arguments have become very influential. First, he claimed that the Supreme Court precedents that Supreme Court precedents were inconsistent with a general right to liberty. Liberty, he wrote. Liberty, he wrote. Quote is interfered with by school laws, by the post office, by every state or municipal institution which takes his his money for purposes thought desirable, whether he likes it or not, unquote. And he actually went on in this vein for a while. I'm not going to quote. So second, apart from precedent, Holmes offered a claim about the Constitution's meaning. Quote, a Constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory, he contended, quote, whether of paternalism and the organic relation of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire, unquote. Rather, in Holmes's view, the Constitution is, quote, made for people of fundamentally differing views, unquote. Both of these objections to const- a constitutional right to liberty have become deeply embedded in constitutional discourse. I expand a little bit about this in the paper on which this lecture is, is based. Yet neither is compelling. Neither of Holmes's arguments, I believe, is compelling. Holmes contended that previous decisions accepting restrictions on liberty refute the existence of a constitutional right to liberty, but this does not follow. For one thing, prior decisions may have been mistaken. But even if they're correct, such decisions do not refute the existence of a general right to liberty. Instead, they could simply be exceptions. An exception presupposes the existence of a general rule, to which it is the exception. Holmes' argument assumes that a constitutional right to liberty must be absolute without exception in order to qualify as a right. But if, however, a right to liberty is viewed as presumptive rather than absolute, then the existence of exceptions is not a bug. It's a feature. Take, for example, the freedom of speech. In practice, the right is presumptive rather than absolute. No one thinks that the constitutionality, for example, of time, place, and manner regulations of speech refutes the existence of the right. Holmes himself repeatedly asserted a general right to freedom of speech, notwithstanding his own well-known opinion that no one has a right to falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. That freedom of speech is a constitutional right places the burden on the government to justify its restrictions on that liberty as both necessary and proper. It may not burden speech merely because it thinks it's a nifty idea. A court must pass upon its necessity and propriety. Likewise, If a general right to liberty is conceived of as a presumption of liberty, to coin a phrase, this does not automatically render all restrictions on actions unconstitutional. It merely means that, as with speech, any restriction on other types of conduct must also be justified. The type of justification will depend on whether a law is a prohibition of wrongful conduct or a regulation of rightful conduct. Prohibiting wrongful conduct is perfectly consistent with a right to liberty. By wrongful here, I mean something very specific. I mean conduct that violates the rights of others. As Spencer's law of equal freedom maintains, no one has the rightful liberty to violate the equal rights of others. The prohibition of wrongful acts constitutes a protection of the rightful liberty of others, rather than an infringement on the liberty of the wrongdoer. No one has the right to do wrong to another. Nor are all legal regulations of rightful conduct inconsistent with the general right to liberty. A regulation, properly understood, is simply a law that specifies how a liberty may be exercised. It takes the form of, if you want to do X, make a contract, carry a gun, drive a car, then here is how you do it. Whether a particular regulation is consistent with liberty depends on the justification offered on its behalf. Regulations are not inimical to liberty if they coordinate individual conduct, as do, for example, traffic regulations mandating driving on one side of the street or the other. They may also be consistent with liberty if they prevent irreparable, tortious um, accidents before they occur, as speed limits do. True, you could sue someone for negligently driving too fast after he crashes into you, but given the bodily harm caused by an accident – it might be better to reduce incidents of negligence by specifying in advance how fast you should drive on a particular stretch of road. Although many libertarians object to government ownership of highways, no libertarian objects in principle to a highway owner regulating its use to enhance the speed and safety of driving. Similarly, contract law is a body of rules regulating the making and enforcing of contracts, of agreements, and libertarians are not opposed to contract law a law restricting conduct is consistent with a right to liberty therefore if it is prohibiting wrongful acts that violate the rights of others or regulating rightful acts in such a way as to coordinate conduct or prevent the violation of rights that might accidentally occur a law is inconsistent with liberty if it is either prohibiting rightful acts like for example the DC gun ban or regulating unnecessarily or improperly a Regulation is improper when it imposes an undue burden on a rightful conduct or when its justification is merely a pretext for restricting a liberty of which others disapprove. We may conclude from all this that if a general right to liberty is presumptive, not absolute, and if the presumption may be rebutted by a showing that a law is prohibiting wrongful or properly regulating rightful acts, then the fact that regulations of liberty have been upheld as constitutional is no evidence— that a general constitutional right to liberty does not exist. It may merely be a sign that the government has met its properly defined burden of proof. But does the Constitution protect a general right to liberty of this type? This brings us to the second of Holmes's objections, that the Constitution does not embody a particular economic theory, whether of paternalism in the organic, in the organic relationship of the citizen to the state or of laissez-faire. In Lochner, who is right? about the Constitution, the majority, or Holmes? The answer depends on what the Constitution means. And to figure this out requires a method of constitutional interpretation. As a political philosophy, libertarianism does not specify how the Constitution should be interpreted. Should a libertarian simply favor any interpretation of the text that enhances liberty? I think not. The Constitution is the law that governs those who govern us, that those who govern may be restrained in the exercise of their power and subject to the law. It was put in writing. As John Marshall explained in Marbury versus Madison, quote, powers of the legislature are defined and limited and that these that those limited limits may not be mistaken or forgotten. The Constitution is written, unquote, a written constitution performs this restraining function because it has a semantic meaning that is independent of the desires of those who are called upon to interpret it. We adopt a written constitution because it has a semantic meaning that defines the limits of the powers of those who govern and thereby helps keep those powers within proper bounds. And we adhere to the semantic meaning at the time of enactment, because a written constitution would fail to perform its purpose if legislatures, executives, or courts could, whether alone or in combination, alter the meaning of these constraints on their powers. The name we use today to describe this approach to constitutional interpretation is original public meaning originalism, or originalism for short. An originalist is simply a person who believes that the semantic meaning of the Constitution must be followed until it is properly changed. But there is a limit to the guidance provided by original public meaning of the Constitution. Often, the text is specific enough to be applied directly to, the mo- to, the, to most controversies it was meant to govern. For example, each state is supposed to have two senators, and the president has to be 35 years of age. These are the provisions of the Constitution that are not usually disputed or litigated. But other provisions of the text are more general or vague. The Eighth Amendment bans cruel and unusual punishments, not specific types of punishments. It also bans excessive bail and fines, not a specific sum of money. The Fourth Amendment bans unreasonable searches and seizures, not particular methods. And the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments require the due process of law without specifying what that process might be. Even seemingly more specific provisions, such as the prohibition on laws abridging the freedom of speech, require further specification of what constitutes speech, given changing technology, and what constitutes an abridgment that the original meaning of provisions like these are vague does not mean that they do not provide any guidance at all. For one thing, there are core or paradigm cases to which they clearly apply and peripheral cases to which they clearly do not. But a text is vague when it is unclear whether a borderline case is included in or excluded by its meaning. In this situation, the original meaning of the text must be supplemented because the original meaning of the text has run out. Constitutional interpretation is the activity of identifying the original meaning of the text. Constitutional construction is the activity of supplementing original meaning when it is too vague to settle a dispute on its own. And I think if you're to take away anything from this talk that perhaps you didn't know when you walked in, and that is that there is a difference between constitutional interpretation and constitutional construction, between putting meaning to the words on the page and applying the meaning of words on the page to particular cases and controversies that come before a court. That's something that originalism, those are questions to which originalism does not always provide the answer. The question is, how does this original meaning apply in particular contexts? Now, with this analysis in mind, We are in a position to address the question Is the Constitution libertarian? By which I mean, does the original meaning of the Constitution as amended respect and protect the fundamental individual rights that define the core of both classical liberalism and modern libertarianism? To assess this, we must now briefly examine the original meaning of the Constitution, what the Constitution says, and how it may fairly be construed. The original Constitution protected the rights of life, liberty, and property against infringement by the federal government in two different ways. First and foremost, Congress was not given a general legislative power, but only those legislative powers herein granted, referring to the powers that were specified in Article I, Section 8. You don't need the Tenth Amendment. Just look at the first sentence of Article I, which defines the legislative powers and limits those powers to the powers herein granted. That's the Tenth Amendment, only it's right in the body of the text itself. It is striking how these powers, the powers on the list in Article I, Section 8, avoid expressly restricting the rightful exercise of liberty. The power to raise and support armies does not include an express power of conscription, which would interfere with the property one has in one's own person. The power to establish the post office does not expressly claim a power to make the government post office a monopoly, which would interfere with the freedom of contract of those who wish to contract with a private company of the sort founded by Lysander Spooner. By contrast, I should say, the Articles of Confederation did accord the Congress a monopoly, the power to establish a monopoly post office. That power was given in the Articles of Confederation. It was not specified in the Constitution. There are only three powers Uh, on that list that might be construed as restricting the rightful exercise of liberty. The first, and most notoriously, I would say, is the Necessary and Proper Clause, granting the Congress the power to, quote, make all laws which shall be necessary and proper to carry into execution its foregoing, its other powers. Now, even here, a law must not only be necessary, it must also be proper, which suggests that a law that violates the rights retained by the people might well be improper, Second is the power of Congress, quote, to promote the progress of science and the useful arts by granting for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive rights to their respective writings and discoveries, unquote. Libertarians are divided about whether granting patents or copyrights to some violates the rights of others. But even this provision does not mandate the creation of a patent or copyright system. It merely authorizes Congress to establish one if it so chooses. And the final provision would be the power of taxation, which is a little too complicated to go into in this talk. I would just merely say that whether a general power to tax does violate or does not violate the retained rights of the people to their property, uh, it's certainly a restriction on liberty of a different order than a direct regulation or restriction of the property rights that we have. And if you want an illustration of this contrast being forced to pay a general tax in order to pay the salaries of those who would fight in a war with being conscripted to fight in the war yourself. There's a big difference between being taxed to pay for something and being forced to do it yourself. But the So, um, of course, the Supreme Court has upheld countless federal laws restricting liberty, primarily under the power of Congress to regulate commerce among the several states combined with an open-ended reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause. And I do want to note that pretty much every Commerce Clause case that has been used to restrict liberty has been done in, the, in combination with an overbroad reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause. It's not being done by using the Commerce Clause alone. Further, um, the courts have upheld the power of Congress to spend tax revenues for purposes other than for carrying into execution its enumerated powers. This shows, I believe, only that, with respect to federal power, the text of the original Constitution is far more libertarian than the redacted Constitution enforced by the Supreme Court. But the original Constitution is not all we have. Two years after its enactment, the Constitution was amended by the Bill of Rights. These ten amendments included several express guarantees of such liberties as the freedom of speech, press, assembly, and the right to keep and bear arms. The Bill of Rights barred takings for public use without just compensation. It provided additional procedural assurances that the laws would be applied accurately and fairly to particular individuals. All of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights are consistent with, a modern, with modern libertarian political philosophy. And to this list... Of rights was added the Ninth Amendment that says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In this way, even liberty rights that were not listed were given express constitutional protection. Finally, the Tenth Amendment reaffirmed what was already stated in the first sentence of Article I that Congress could only exercise those powers that were delegated to it by this Constitution. Now, despite the efforts of James Madison in the first Congress, the first ten amendments only restricted federal power. States retained their virtually unlimited powers to restrict the liberties of their residents, subject only to their own constitutions and their own courts. So great were the reserve powers of states that they were thought to have the power to sanction the enslavement of some persons within their jurisdiction. That's a lot of power. Because it allowed the states to violate the rights of their citizens with near impunity, the original Constitution was deeply flawed from a libertarian perspective. Fortunately, it was amended in ways that made it far more libertarian. While the 13th Amendment ban on involuntary servitude expanded the Constitution's protection of individual liberty against abuses by states, it was the 14th Amendment that radically altered the federalism of the original Constitution. For the first time, Congress and the courts could invalidate state laws, any state laws, that abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. The original meaning of privileges or immunities included the the very same natural rights uh, retained by the people to which the Ninth Amendment referred, but also the additional enumerated rights that were contained in the Bill of Rights. When the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment is combined with the Ninth, the unenumerated liberty rights retained by the people were expressly protected against infringement by both federal and state governments. Of course, the protection of liberty afforded by the Constitution is not limited to the direct protection of liberty by courts. It includes as well the checks and balances provided by the separation of powers at the federal level and the division of powers by the, um, between national and state governments. In addition, the Constitution it contains popular checks on legislative and executive power. These include the power of the electorate to remove legislators and presidents from office during regular elections and eventually term limits for the president. The constitutional guarantee of a jury trial originally included not only the power of citizen juries to pass upon the facts of a case to acquit the innocent, but also the power to refuse to convict persons charged with violating unjust or unconstitutional laws. It's worth noting that none of these structural and procedural protections is dictated by libertarian political philosophy. All are to be assessed pragmatically by whether, on balance, they serve to protect fundamental rights. With the weakening or loss of the other explicitly liberty protecting clauses of the Constitution, however, these structural constraints are responsible, are largely responsible, for preserving the liberty that Americans still enjoy. Now, some of you may have noticed that to this point, I've not mentioned, uh, much less analyzed, the foreign policy powers created by the Constitution. In this final portion of my remarks, I want to explain why libertarianism tells us very little about uh, either the conduct of foreign policy or how the foreign policy powers of the national government should be allocated among the different branches. Not coincidentally, perhaps, neither does the original meaning of the Constitution, Modern libertarianism, as I've already claimed, is based on these five fundamental rights of private property, freedom of contract, first possession, defense of self and others, and restitution. My thesis is, first, a constitution is libertarian to the extent that it creates a political order that respects and protects these rights. And second, the original meaning of the constitution is far more libertarian than the redacted version applied by the Supreme Court today. In the realm of foreign policy, however, the libertarian commitment to these individual fundamental rights complicates matters in ways that many libertarians, in my experience, do not fully appreciate. Some libertarians instinctively try to apply the same principles of self-defense and aggression to states that they apply to individuals. But doing so is a category mistake. Uh, That results, ironically, in the reification of of nation-states in a way that should make libertarians uncomfortable. To reduce the likelihood of religious wars, the peace of Westphalia in the 17th century gave every monarch a sovereign control over the lives and property of all within his territory. Every monarch could establish the religion of his realm to which all must adhere, and no monarch was to interfere with the internal affairs of any other sovereign. In effect, each sovereign monarch became the recognized legal owner of his territory and the people residing therein. And each sovereign was obliged to respect the ownership rights of the other sovereign monarchs. Whatever the virtues of the system of nation-state nation sovereignties, the foundation of the American republic greatly complicated the theory on which it rested. Lacking a monarch or aristocracy... Americans were skeptical of the very notion of sovereignty. Consider the seventeen ninety-three case of Chisholm versus Georgia, the Supreme Court's first great constitutional case. It's a case that's not taught in law schools anymore. It should be. In fact, in my casebook, which Roger mentioned, my new casebook, which teaches the subject chronologically, it is the first case that appears uh, in the casebook, because that's where it begins in 1793. In Chisholm, The court rejected the state of Georgia's claim of sovereign immunity against a suit for – against it for breach of contract in federal court, which which had been brought against it in federal court. Justice James Wilson began his opinion by noting the following. To the Constitution of the United States, the term sovereign is totally unknown. There is but one place where it could have been used with propriety. But even in that place, it would not perhaps have comported with the delicacy of those who ordained and established that Constitution. They might have announced themselves sovereign people of the United States, but serenely conscious of the fact, they avoided the ostentatious declaration. It's worth noting that James Wilson, unlike James Madison, was on the Committee of Detail that produced the first text – of the Constitution at the Constitutional Convention. So he knew something about the word choices that were used in the document. Now, in his lengthy opinion in Chisholm, Wilson rejected both the feudal notion of monarchical sovereignty and the Blackstonian notion of parliamentary sovereignty in favor of the concept of what we could call individual sovereignty. As government was not itself sovereign, according to Wilson, Instead, what he referred – government was instead he referred to as a collection of individual sovereigns. That's how he referred to the state of Georgia, as a collection of individual sovereigns. Likewise, Chief Justice John Jay, in his opinion in Chisholm, referred to, quote, fellow citizens and joint sovereigns. This is a notion of popular sovereignty as individual sovereignty that has been completely lost. When we think of popular sovereignty today, we think of some collective notion, like in fact, like the collective right to keep and bear arms. But in fact, at least for Wilson and Jay, sovereignty was an individual matter, something that belonged to individual. Now, James Wilson was a forceful proponent of natural rights, which he, on which he lectured extensively at the University of Pennsylvania. He was the first professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. And the notion of individual sovereignty that he articulates in Chisholm is indistinguishable from the libertarian view that each person is sovereign with respect to what is properly hers as defined by the five uh, fundamental rights I mentioned. Like a monarch, the individual may do or refrain from doing anything with what she rightfully possesses. Any forcible interference with this individual sovereignty constitutes an aggression that may be resisted by force if necessary in self-defense. And others may justly come to the assistance of persons whose rights are being violated in a way Individual sovereignty is just taking the Westphalian notion of state sovereignty and applying it to individual persons. And they are the people who become, as individuals, treated like kings of their own private domain. Now, if the people, in their individual capacity, are the true sovereigns, then no ruler may justly deprive them of their inalienable fundamental rights. Since the horrors of the Holocaust... The Westphalian concept of the nation-state, so- of nation-state sovereignty, has been qualified in international law by the recognition of human rights that no state may violate. Though it is far from clear under international law when one state or group of states may intervene to protect these rights, the existence of these rights has not is now well recognized. Individual empowering technology has also undermined the neat Westphalian picture of sovereign nation-states with the power to control what takes place within their borders. Transnational globalization is the liberating upside of empowered individuals. The newfound power of non-governmental terrorist organizations, NGOs, terrorist NGOs, to wage wars against nation-states and their population is the downside of this empowerment. This erosion of the Westphalian nation-state system requires new thinking by libertarians. Now, the first instinct of collectivists or statists has been to create and empower international organizations that resemble governments writ large. For them, the New World Order requires one world government. Libertarians know this is a bad idea, but they have yet to develop their own coherent approach to the protection of individual rights from abuses by nation-states. And I think, unfortunately, some reflexively default to the unqualified Westphalian notion of nation-state sovereignty. The foreign po- now, I don't purport to do this in this talk, and I don't purport to do this in my paper on which this talk is based, but I think it's something that needs to be done. It's something that, at the very minimum, is under-theorized by libertarians. The foreign policy of non-interventionism to which the Cato Institute is committed is, by and large, in my view the most workable approach to the preservation of liberties enjoyed by Americans and the avoidance of the unanticipated consequences of initiating or provoking foreign wars. But a policy of non-interventionism should not be equated with the fundamental human rights that define modern libertarianism. It is a policy that must be evaluated pragmatically and one in which exceptions are sometimes warranted, for example, when the protection of the rights of Americans is best served By protecting the rights of foreigners. By no means am I proposing that any single nation state, such as the United States, should take it upon itself to go to the rescue of all those whose fundamental rights are being violated by their governments. I am merely noting that a nation state is not violating libertarian fundamental rights when, for reasons of its own national interest, it protects those whose fundamental rights are being systematically violated by their governments. When the French government provided military assistance to the American revolutionaries, it did so after the Declaration of Independence specified how the British government had systematically violated the rights of Americans. In foreign policy matters, the text of the Constitution provides much less guidance than it does with respect to domestic powers. For example, the Constitution says that Congress shall have the power to declare war. But the original meaning of this term had a technical sense of altering the legal relationship of two nations under international law from a state of peace to a state of war. It did not purport to govern all uses of the military in response to a state of war that was initiated by the aggression of a foreign power against Americans, whether at home or abroad. One can declare war without firing a shot, but when shots are fired – a state of war may nevertheless exist even without a declaration of war. The Constitution says that the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, but it doesn't specify the degree to which his powers can be constrained by statutes, enacted by the Congress, which the Constitution says the president has a duty to take care, be faithfully executed. The Constitution gives Congress the enumerated power to make Rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, but it is unclear as to whether these regulations apply to the president himself or to the minute details of a military campaign. And of course, Congress retains the all-powerful power of the purse. So, as wrong as Holmes was to claim that a lack of to claim a lack of constitutional constraints on the domestic powers of government, his description might well be accurate with respect to the realm of foreign policy. For better or worse. The Constitution may well be made, quote, made for people of fundamentally differing views about foreign policy, whether these views be interventionist or non-interventionist. While the domestic powers of the federal government are constitutionally limited, the foreign policy, its foreign policy powers are, for all intents and purposes, limited only by political mechanisms. So let's now return to the question, is the Constitution libertarian? So I think even with all the caveats on qualifications put to one side, and which I have more in my paper than I even have articulated here, I think the answer is clear. As written, the Constitution of the United States may be the most explicitly libertarian governing document ever actually enacted into law. The Supreme Court says that only the liberties that are listed in the Bill of Rights plus a right of privacy merit judicial protection. But the Constitution says that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Supreme Court says that the states must respect a mere handful of liberties. But the Constitution says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Why then have these and other parts of the Constitution been excised from constitutional law. Tempting as it is to blame the court, the founders understood how unrealistic it was to expect judges to withstand majoritarian pressures for very long. After all, justices are typically chosen by presidents from among those who share the zeitgeist of their day. The Constitution has been redacted precisely because its across-the-board protections of liberty stood in the way of the politically popular growth of government that culminated in the New Deal and the Great Society. The lost Constitution will only be restored when the constitutional imperative of individual liberty are as well understood today as they were by those who wrote the Constitution, those who wrote the Bill of Rights, and those who wrote The 13th and 14th Amendments. All who hear these words, here or at home, have a role to play in bettering their own understanding of individual liberty so they may explain the blessings of liberty to others. The lost Constitution will not be restored by erudite legal arguments or clever litigation strategies until the public's demand for individual liberty and limited government produces a president who will appoint faithful originalist justices and senators who will confirm them. And when that day arrives, the libertarian Constitution, which lies under glass a mere 4,800 feet from where we are sitting tonight, will be waiting. Thanks. Thanks.
0: I think you can see from that um, sustained applause, as we say in the law, res The case speaks for itself. Thank you, Randy. Okay, let's have some questions from those in the audience, and um, wait till the microphone gets to you. Identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. Should I stand up for this? Uh, no, no, you can just sit right there, Randy. You've stood long, quite long enough. This gentleman right here, please. David Beckler, I wonder how the uh, um, freedom of choice – Could you bring it closer? How does freedom of choice fit into the libertarian context?
1: Uh, Freedom of choice is extremely important to the libertarian context, but it isn't unlimited freedom of choice. It's freedom of choice to do what one wills with what's yours. So built right into libertarianism are the boundaries that are defined by the rights uh, of others – so it's not unlimited freedom to do what everyone wills. That's Hobbesian freedom in which everyone's at war with everyone else. It's a Lockean freedom in which there are natural limits to everyone's freedom of choice. No, referring, to referring to Roe versus Wade. Well, that really will depend on whether you think – Um, The unborn have rights. If the unborn have rights, then their rights must be protected along with everyone else's rights. They're entitled to the equal protection of the laws. If you don't have rights until you're born, until you're a natural born citizen then even if you are human, you, you don't have rights yet, then at that point, uh, it, it's subject to the woman's right to choose. So libertarianism, um, uh, the Constitution itself doesn't say that much about it, except if you defi- you have to define the word person and you have to define the original meaning of the word citizen. Um, uh, but beyond that, libertarians disagree about when people When humans get rights, do they get it from conception or do they get it sometime during the gestation period or do they get it at birth? It's when rights attach that make all the difference.
0: Yes, the uh, lady in the back there. Laurie Ann Updike. I head up the Constitutional Sources Project, which has created Consource, an online library of the founders' constitutional documents. Uh, Pleasure to meet you. And the question that I have deals with your definition of originalism, as uh, the original public understanding of Original the public meaning. Original right. public meaning of the Constitution. Would that definition, and to, to what extent does that definition include source
2: material or historical material?
1: Historical material is very important. Um, uh, it's, it's what we, I used to be a prosecutor, so I used to be a trial lawyer. So the issue is when something is relevant or not relevant in trial, you have to ask, what are you trying to prove? So certain types of evidence can be relevant for multiple Purposes, but you're only allowed to introduce evidence to prove a material issue. So the issue of whether source material is relevant depends on what you're trying to prove. And, and an original public meaning approach is trying to prove what is the original meaning of the words in context. Historical material is extremely important to figure out what did these words mean in context. Did they mean what they mean today, or did they have some other general meaning, or did they, were they terms of art? that had specific legal context at the time they were enacted. All I do a lot of historical work myself, and that's what I'm trying to show. That's different than trying to prove what the intentions are of the people who wrote the document insofar as you want to know, well, how would they have applied this meaning to particular cases and controversies. Original public meaning originalists no longer seek that. Or they're not originalists and move away from seeking that sort of Uh, uh, form of originalism, to the notion of we just want to interpret the public meaning of the words in the context that they had, the context they had at the time they were enacted. We're not looking for original intent uh, in order to apply those words. A lot of times the reason why people even nowadays still look to original intent is when they're in the realm of constitutional construction, not interpretation, because the meaning of the words is too vague or abstract to apply. So then they ask themselves, well, how would the framers have done this? But this is no longer – in most cases, it's no longer a historical question. It's a hypothetical question because the the facts and circumstances didn't arise at that time. So you're basically saying, oh, framers, how would you decide this case? And it's really a construct that you construct of original intent. But most originalists today don't look for original intent. They look for original public meaning. And the first originalist to make this switch publicly was Justice Scalia – uh, in his book, A Matter of Interpretation, in which he rejected original intent in favor of original public meaning.
0: Um, Randy May?
2: Thank you, Roger. Uh, Randy May, the Free State Foundation. I want to go back to Roe v. Wade for just a moment and uh, ask you uh answer from another perspective that uh, didn't come up in, when answering the gentleman's question. Uh, As I understand it, it, uh, the decision was based largely on a right to privacy, and so my question is, and and that right uh, was first enunciated in Griswold, and and Griswold relied at least to some extent on the Ninth Amendment, uh, which refers to the rights retained by the people. So my question is, in your view, is the right to privacy one of those rights uh, that is Uh, protected under the Ninth Amendment and one of those rights uh, retained by the people, or another way of asking that, it was Grisw- was Roe v. Wade uh, decided correctly from a libertarian perspective?
1: Well, I've already answered that you can only d- answer the question on Roe if you decide when people get rights, when human beings get rights. So I'm going to put that to one side and talk about whether Griswold was rightly decided, because uh, now we're not talking about that issue anymore. Um, and my view is the right to privacy, as it has been created by the court, was – it's a little hard – I can't really explain this completely in the context of the, of this of this time I have, but it was really kind of a second order way of the court starting to expand beyond a box that had put itself in. In the New Deal period, Um, It essentially adopted this policy of judicial restraint, but it never did so unqualifiedly. It had in the most famous footnote uh, in all of Supreme Court history, footnote four of Caroline Products said that there would be a presumption of constitutionality and laws would be upheld unless it violated one of the enumerated rights that were listed in the Constitution, and that was the way the Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudence were able to reconcile the protection of some enumerated liberties— under judicial review, with judicial restraint that they favored in the economic world. That's, that was their objective. How do we allow everybody to do what they want in economics but retain some power for us to protect individual liberty? Footnote 4 was their solution. When Gris- By the time Griswold came about, they were chafing a bit at the box they put themselves in, and it fell to Justice Douglas to explain how it was they could protect the unenumerated liberty, given that they were only supposed to protect the ones that were specifically prohibited in the Constitution. And that's where the famous emanations formed by penumbra's language came in. He didn't really justify it by reference to the Ninth Amendment per se. That was Justice Goldberg's concurring opinion. He, justis- he justified it because he said there are these enumerated rights, these specific prohibitions, that have emanations formed by penumbras, or maybe it's penumbras formed by emanations. I can never tell whether penumbras form emanations or emanations form penumbras.
0: He couldn't tell either.
1: But the the object of the exercise was to try to tie an unenumerated right to the enumerated rights and stay within the confines of footnote 4. But the reason why all heck broke loose after that was it really did violate the rules of the Roosevelt Court, uh, by protecting an enumerated right for the first time. And that's what's created all the controversy since then. Apart from abortion, that's what's created the constitutional controversy since then. Are you an unreconstructed Roosevelt New Deal judicial restraint person, uh, in which case you believe that legislatures can do whatever they want unless they're violating an express prohibition of the Constitution? Or are you a reconstructed New Deal jurisprude, in which case they can protect enumerated rights and a few unenumerated rights that they deem to be fundamental under their very restrictive approach to that. That's the, what the current debate is. It's between, the current debate largely today is between unreconstructed Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudes and reconstructed Roosevelt New Deal jurisprudes.
0: Um, this gentleman right here.
3: Uh, Howard Cooley uh, with uh, Patrick Henry LLP. I, I, won't go into the story, but uh, when I was uh, teaching at West Point, uh, I was an escort officer for Justice Goldberg, and he uh, gave me the complete story on go, on uh, uh, on why uh, he uh, used the Ninth Amendment. <laughs> but uh, but uh, th- that's another point. My question is: um, To what degree do you believe that contemporary uh, social values? are relevant for interpreting the Constitution. And I, I put that in a in the following context, back to abortion. On something that meet where the rubber meets the road. I have I have a daughter, for example. Um, if she does not want to become pregnant and she or if she becomes pregnant and wants a an abortion, uh, we would think okay, that we would like for her to do that. The law allows that. And we put it in a larger context of if every man in the NFL, every male member of Congress, and indeed you yourself and every member male in this room, also became pregnant, had the capability of becoming pregnant. Would the Would the question of abortion really turn so much on whether or not it is you know? Would the question be as close as it is, and be as 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 fundamental, uh, be as uh, debatable as it is? I would tend to think, realistically, people like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier would get abortions, and people would say, "Okay, we would really find that under contemporary mores, uh, right to life is one of the issues, but we've got to look at the issues of male domination and suppression over females." And there's so many other things that, uh, particularly the regular the regularity argument, which is that so many people now rely on that right that reversing the tre- the the trend uh, to roll back Roe v. Wade now would. Would be, a, would be a real setback in a number of ways, but based on contemporary analysis.
1: Well, um, I'm not going to say any more about abortion than I already have. Um, I will say that I would try to answer this question, like I try to answer all constitutional questions, by asking what the Constitution actually says. And, I would a- and and in order to answer that question, I would say, what is the public meaning, the original public meaning of the text in context at the time it was enacted? Uh, If that provides an answer, that's the end of the matter. If it doesn't provide an answer because what what it says is vague or it's not ambiguous, but whether it's vague uh, and not clear, and then we would engage in constitutional construction in applying what it does say to facts of particular cases. Um, uh, That's the approach I would take. I would not take the approach what policies would I like to see today and, therefore, the Constitution must authorize those policies or forbid those things, which I want to see forbidden today. I wouldn't start with my conclusion and work myself back to what the Constitution says. I would start with the Constitution and work myself forward to see if that, is, that activity is either permissible or impermissible, uh, or whether legislation on that subject is either permitted or not permitted by the Constitution.
0: Uh, Lee? You probably
3: have a paper on SSRN. Uh, that could
0: you I identify yourself, up. Lee? Oh,
3: sorry. I apologize. Lee uh, Lee Lieberman Otis with the Federalist Society. You probably have a paper that I need to look up on constitutional construction on SSRN. But um, could you give an example of it? Because I'm not sure I get it yet.
1: Um, well, let's just take the – let's take it in the First Amendment area. You have uh, the doctrine of – you have the public uh, – whether something is a public forum or not a public forum or a limited public forum. Um, Or you have the doctrine of uh, whether a particular rule against speech is uh, content neutral or not content neutral. None of this is in the Constitution. None of this is in the original meaning of the Constitution. These are all doctrines that courts have come up with to put into effect what is in the Constitution in order to figure out what is an abridgment of speech and what is not an abridgment of speech. It is not an objection to these doctrines that they are not in the Constitution. We all have played the sort of cheap shop game in which we say to our opponents, just where in the Constitution does it say X? We all like to do that. But the truth is that even though that's sometimes an appropriate response, it's oftentimes not an appropriate response. We need constitutional law, constitutional doctrine, to put into effect what the Constitution says, because the text doesn't automatically apply itself. So you really once you look at the distinction between meaning, and application, um, uh, it turns out constitutional construction is both unavoidable and pervasive. And then the only question is, are those constructions, which are not deducible from the meaning of the text, are they consistent with the meaning of the text, or do they undermine, in some respects, the meaning of the text? So essentially, look at it this way. Constitutional interpretation provides a frame. I mean, where it's vague, where there's vague, where it's not clear. Because sometimes it is clear, but where it's vague, it provides a frame, and you get, in some sense, you have the discretion to choose doctrines within that frame to try to put into effect what the Constitution says. And but you're excluded from picking a doctrine that's outside the frame.
0: Okay, uh, one last question. And and
1: I do devote a chapter of restoring the lost Constitution to to constitutional construction from
0: Eric Jaffe, who is a constitutional litigator.
3: As Roger said, Eric Jaffe, a constitutional Um, gadfly. My question goes to when engaging in constitutional construction, do you think that there are libertarian principles that put a thumb on the scale of which construction you choose? And if so, would your hook for that be something like the Ninth Amendment or the proper portion of the necessary and proper clause or some structural aspect of the Constitution being a libertarian document as a whole or something else?
1: Well, Eric, as usual, uh, you raise a very, very fundamental question, maybe more fundamental than you realize, and it is something I allude to in the paper that I cut out of the talk because I felt it would be just too much to get into in the time I have, and it's something that I've written about Um, And I'll just – I'm just going to identify the issue, and I'm not going to really resolve it. But how you do constitutional construction depends, I think, on what you think makes a constitution legitimate. And by legitimate, I mean what you think makes a constitution binding. Now, we don't all agree on what makes a constitution binding. Some people believe it's binding because of original consent. Some people believe it's binding because of present-day consent. And some people believe the Constitution is binding because it provides procedures that respect the rights of those upon whom it's imposed without their consent. I fall into the latter of these categories. And whatever your theory of constitutional legitimacy, whatever your theory of what it is that makes a Constitution binding, that will influence, and I think properly so, how Constitution should be construed where it is vague, where the meaning of the Constitution itself has run out. And so – That's what we sometimes need to be debating. Why do we think a constitution is binding? And based on that, how do we think a constitution should be construed? So the bottom line answer to your question is I think a constitution should be construed with a thumb on the scale to liberty, not only because of what the constitution says but because of what makes a constitution legitimate. And what makes a constitution legitimate is the fact that it provides procedural assurances that the laws that it enacts pursuant to its authority – are, not, are being imposed on a non-consenting public that don't violate those per- persons' rights and are necessary to protect the rights of others. That's the thumb on the scale. That doesn't, it's not the only way to do construction because there are issues that don't ar- involve individual liberty. There are other things that government does that don't involve individual liberty. But when liberty is implicated, the thumb on the scale should be in favor of the individual fundamental rights that libertarians believe in.
0: But, uh, Randy, the Constitution itself is not silent, uh, is it, with respect to its own theory of legitimacy? I mean, there are materials within the Constitution, starting with the preamble and the whole idea that we, the people of the United States, for the purposes listed, do ordain and establish. In other words, it suggests it's in the grand state of nature, tradition from Locke, from the Declaration, right to the preamble, and therefore you have materials from which you can construct a theory of legitimacy, not perfectly, to be sure.
1: But it's, it's bootstrapping to look yes. to the document, to ask why the document is authoritative. That's right. Um, you have to, it, why the document is authoritative is a question that we all have to answer today, here and now. I'm an originalist because I believe here and now we are committed to a written constitution, and originalism follows from that commitment. But we all have to ask the question, and, and we can't look to the document that we're, about whose legitimacy we're asking to ask why it's legitimate. And I believe uh, my, I I, I think you have to have a theory of this and you have to take sides and people disagree about this. I told you what my view is. I think original consent is a fiction. I think present day consent is a fiction. The constitution is going to be imposed on people who don't consent. And then the question is what justifies that? And I believe the answer to that question is what justifies that is proof that those impositions don't violate the rights of the people on, on whom they're being imposed and are necessary to protect the rights of others. If if legislation passes that scrutiny, then it can be legitimate even in the absence of consent.
0: Good. Okay, uh, that brings us to a conclusion for this Constitution Day conference and this Simon lecture. And please join us for a reception and please give a warm (laughs) response.